Good evening, it's uh, good to be here and uh, to see you all. Um, we're going to have our Bible reading in a couple of minutes, but I thought it's kind of customary often at this time to sort of introduce yourselves to each other. But we're going to have a bit of a variation on that, because I'm conscious that probably a good number of you here actually don't have a clue who I am. So I'm going to introduce myself to you. No war and peace or anything like that, but uh, just briefly so you know where this chap has appeared from. Uh, my name is Anthony, or Ants if you like shortening names. Uh, my wife is Beverly, or Bev, and collectively we're often known as Ant and Bev. So that's us. Um, we've been members here at Mutley for just over a year, so you may have seen us knocking about over there, where we seem to have got our accustomed row already. Uh, we've got two grown-up daughters, Becky and Sarah, both graduates of Plymouth University, so it can't be that bad. And uh, Becky is a nurse and is married and has emigrated to Cornwall. And uh, Sarah completed her degree a year ago, um, and she's emigrating to Wales in September. So we're coming up to that strange part of life where we suddenly find ourselves on our own again. But uh, we live in Plimpton, and one of the good things about coming to Mutley was sort of hooking up with the Plimpton House Group. Uh, we have some very old friends in the Plimpton House Group. Now, I should say there, Roger's looking happy about that comment. Obviously, they're not old themselves. I mean, the friendships have been long. We've known them a long time. Uh, Roger, for example, was one of my youth leaders years ago. And he actually baptised me, so he's a significant chap in my life. And uh, Andrew, another member of our house group, a bit later on, was also one of my youth leaders. Uh, he lent me his copy of Dark Side of the Moon, and uh, he conducted our wedding. So he's pretty significant as well. So it's been good to catch up with people that we've known for many years. So that's about all we need to know. But we're going to uh, have our Bible reading now. Now, if this service was being broadcast by the BBC, which of course it isn't, this warning would now be given. The Bible reading that follows contains graphic images which some readers may find disturbing. So with that in mind, Matthew chapter 5... And verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. My father used to be a regular speaker at Christian youth camps. And on occasion, as a family, we would go with him for a free holiday. 
On one occasion, when I was ten, we went with him to Bermuda. But on other occasions, we went to more exotic places like Morto, Newport, Burnham-on-Sea. These were the sort of places we discovered as we followed him around. And in fact, it was on one of those occasions as an underage camper that I became a Christian. But there's lots of, a few little memories of those early times attending these camps. And I've tried to pinpoint this, and Bev's argued with me about it, because if I, you know, would it be possible with my reading age be about right? But I'm reckoning I was about six. When I was at one of these youth camps, I discovered two things. Christian bookstores and lust. Now, I probably need to explain myself. From the bookstall, I was allowed, with my pocket money, to buy a slim volume. It was a cartoon story by someone called Jack Chick, entitled, This Was Your Life. I was interested to see when I googled this that it was very easy to find, even after all these years. It's a book that... uh, has been published in about a hundred languages and uh, is known as the book that horrified children. And looking at bits of it now, I'm not entirely surprised that uh, that should be the case. I've even found the exact page there. You probably can't quite make it out, but the exact page that ties in with tonight's sermon. The premise of the book is that the central character is doing pretty well. He's leading a very good life. He's doing okay for himself. Life is great until something happens which completely changes everything for the worse. He suddenly drops dead. From his grave, he rises naked into heaven, which appears to be a multi-screen cinema complex, a bit like the one they're going to build at Bretonside. Perhaps that's the one where he soon finds the events of his life replayed to him. Everything has been recorded, and everything can now be seen. All those sins which are going to prevent our hero from getting into heaven. Now, apart from telling naughty jokes, which was one of the things he did, the height of this man's sin, as far as I could see, is demonstrated in a brief scene here where a blonde lady is seen to be walking past. Our hero peers from the door behind and utters the words, Mmm, nice. Now at the foot of the page, in case you've missed the significance of the words, Mmm, nice, is reprinted in full, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, that we've just read, King James Version, in full. One can only imagine the number of young people such as myself who grew up knowing that to find a young lady attractive was the worst kind of sin. Let's be honest, though. Lust isn't the easiest thing to talk about, you know, on a sort of um, one-to-one basis. It can be quite tricky. In my student years, I attended a church house party During a quiet moment, one of the younger lads pinned me up the corner with an earnest question. 
He said, do you have trouble with LPs? How do you cope with them? Now, bear in mind, this was the 1980s. So for me, LPs was about discovering the delights of 1970s classic and prog rock. For the younger ones here, LPs are what we now call vinyl, which is now reappearing in HMV and places like that. And my record collection was growing rapidly at that stage. So I told him that I had no trouble at all with LPs. In fact, I really enjoyed them. It was a pain when they got scratched and didn't work properly. But no, I've thoroughly no problem at all. Somehow the astonished look on his face told me that he wasn't talking about Genesis, Led Zeppelin or Queen. So I asked him to explain. Lustful passions, he whispered. Oh, those, I said. Yeah, I see what you mean. And it's not the easiest thing to talk about in church either. Some of you might remember this uh, extract from the very first page of Adrian Plass's fictional sacred diary. Our church is getting like an auction room. One blink and you get ministered to. Sit still and keep your eyes shining. That's my motto. This morning was Edwin Burlesford's fault. 45 minutes on sin. A record nine fruit gum talk. Halfway through, I was checking supplies when Edwin suddenly shouted, Lust! And made me drop the packet under the chair. Put my head down between my knees to recover it, then couldn't get up because Doreen Cook pressed her hands down on the back of my head. She prayed that our despairing brother would move from darkness to light. I was all for that. I couldn't see a thing. When she let me get up, she had one of those roguish Christian smiles on her face. Came very close to really giving her something to forgive me for. Everyone thinks I've got a big lust problem now. At coffee time, they all smiled reassuringly at me. Leonard Thin hugged me. You might want to think carefully before you bow your head at any stage this evening. And for the mathematicians among you, we're probably looking at about seven fruit gums, I think, tonight. So. But in tonight's brief section from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues with his teaching on the Jewish law. He has described how he has come to fulfill the law rather than to abolish it. He turns his attention to the big one, as we heard last Sunday night, murder. And now he comes to the question of adultery. You have heard it said, is how he starts. Of course they had. His listeners had certainly heard the laws of Moses. For many of them, their whole lives were about keeping God's commandments. And certainly not what we would just call the Ten Commandments, but the hundreds that grew up around them, God-given and man-made alike. There was a great deal of pride in keeping the laws of God. On one occasion, a young man came to Jesus and asked him what he could do to gain eternal life. And Jesus' response was to remind him about the commandments. His answer was, 
yeah, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Now, that is one big claim to make, isn't it? But he seemed deadly serious. Even the Apostle Paul, who described himself as the chief of sinners, when writing to the Philippians, recorded that in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. And he went on to claim that as for righteousness based on law, he was faultless. These people knew their law, and they determined to live by it. For the less holy people, perhaps there was a sense that we could never be as good as them. So when Jesus comes along, he quotes what they know, what they have heard. Do not commit adultery, they know it. But now, as with the discussion of murder, as we heard last week, he announces, but I say. His listeners are hanging on to his every word. Is Jesus going to uphold the law or not? He says he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Will he maybe just lower the standard a bit for us ordinary mortals, make it a little bit easier for us? But as we saw with murder last week, Jesus actually raises the bar. His listeners would have been ticking them off smugly as they listened. Do not murder. Yep, fine with that. Do not commit adultery. Yep, tick that off. Keep them coming. But I say, if you are angry with your brother, but I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, if you're even entertaining the thought, Jesus says. So you can be fine on the outside, People look at the outside, but of course, as Samuel was reminded by God, God looks at the heart, and he has an altogether different standard. The rich young man that we were reminded of, who so confidently affirmed his keeping of all God's commandments, soon saw his confidence fall apart. I mean, between you and I, I have my doubts about him. Did he really never even tell a lie? Nothing? Of course, I may just be judging him by my own imperfect standards. But Jesus had been choosy, if you read that story, with the commandments that he'd mentioned to this man. When Jesus invited him to sell everything and follow him, he was immediately shown as a fraud. He couldn't even keep commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. His money was his God. As for Paul, I don't know if literally he was saying he was faultless. Again, I guess probably not. But keeping the law was his obsession. But to the Philippians, he would go on to say that all that righteousness, all that keeping of the law was just rubbish when it came to it. Observing the law could never save him. His righteousness as ours could only come by faith in Jesus. So there's the sort of murder that lands you in prison. And there's the sort of adultery that lands you in divorce court. And then there is the Jesus standard. Not just the things which are obvious to everyone, but the crimes and the infidelities that take place in our hearts. So if you're sitting here this evening relying on your own goodness to be right with God, then there is a challenge for you. Firstly, whose standards are you using to measure your goodness? 
Do you measure yourself against God's rules? That is, God's rules as applied by Jesus. Do you truly know what it is to be perfect in action and in thought? That is the standard that God requires of us. And where is this leading us? To a reminder that none of us is perfect by those standards. All of us fall short. None of us can claim ourselves to be right with God. It was all very humorous, maybe earlier on, when we looked at this was your life. Of course, it isn't a sin to think that someone is nice, even in capital letters. But the inference that couldn't really be put in a children's cartoon was that there was a lot more going on in the young man's head than was written on the page. He wasn't an adulterer, according to the divorce court, but in God's eyes, it seems he was. So if you're struggling to reach God by leading a good life, the task just got a whole lot harder. In fact, sorry, it just got impossible. What we need to remind ourselves is that Jesus came to fulfill the law and he is the one who did succeed in living the perfect, sinless life in thought and deed. He is the one who took our punishment upon him. Now, Paul says our faith, our hope, is in faith in Jesus only. It's the difference between do and done. All other religions tell us to reach God by doing. But in Christianity, God receives us because of our faith in what Jesus has done. The outlook just improved a lot. It's a happy ending. But we've still got those two rather unpleasant verses in verses 29 and 30. So we're going to have to look at them. If your eye causes you to sin or to stumble, the immediate inference there is that adultery is a sin of the eye. The first thing is the looking. If you have a sight problem, Jesus says, then get rid of it, gouge it out. If you have a problem keeping your hands to yourself, then chop them off. Better, he says, to be missing a part of your anatomy than to end up in hell. In case you are one of those readers who's finding the graphic images a bit disturbing, you might be thinking that Jesus was just having a bad day, and this was a bit of an isolated rant. But unfortunately, if we were to look into Matthew 18, we find that there's a similar thought there, where Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. So we've got eyes, hands, feet. If you had a choice to make, then you'd better make a right choice between sinning and eternal life with God. The film 127 Hours is based on a true story of survival. As I am famously and incredibly dreadfully squeamish, it still amazes me that I actually sat through this in a holiday cottage in Wales a few years ago. Aaron Ralston is canyoneering, I think that's a real word, presumably, and he's doing this in Utah's Canyonlands National Park, where he slips and falls. 
in the fall, a boulder traps his arm against a rock. And he's unable to make himself heard, and all attempts to free himself fail. After about five days, getting up towards 127 hours, he realizes that he has a stark choice to make. He either cuts off his own lower arm, or he stays there and dies. He chooses to remove his lower arm, and he walks free. In Jesus' words, it's as if he's thinking, it's better for me to lose one member of my body than to die. And that's the choice that Jesus was presenting his listeners with, that sin will kill you ultimately, so you need to cut it out. But hang on a minute, didn't we just say that none of us can do that? If I cut off all my limbs and take all my eyes out, is that ever going to be enough to make me right with God? It can't be, because I'm a sinner, and so are you. But Jesus is saying this, we have to make a choice between life and death, heaven and hell. You may want to try and do it yourself and achieve it by your own efforts, but this isn't a 50% pass mark in this particular exam. And even if we thought our outward goodness was good enough, it's perfection in action and thought that counts. So you need to do something about that sin. As the Bible tells us, Jesus steps in and solves the dilemma for us by dying to take the punishment of our sin. The answer is his perfection, and the answer is faith in him. So is that the end to where we're going this evening? I'm afraid not. We've recognized that our only hope is in Jesus We've put our trust in him, we're saved, we're secure in him, and God sees us as perfect through Jesus. There's a life to be lived, but as we're being reminded on Sunday mornings at the moment, God's Holy Spirit lives in us. He changes us, he makes us like Jesus. He helps us not to sin, and we can depend totally on him. But we still sin. We constantly get it wrong. Spurgeon supposedly told of a woman who announced to him once that she had reached a state of sinless perfection. He said that soon changed when someone stood on her foot. We cannot earn salvation by the things that we do, and thankfully we don't earn God's continuing favor through our own hard work. Christianity is all about the grace of God. But that doesn't let you and me off scot-free. The Holy Spirit is God, but he requires our cooperation. There's a continuing sense in which we actually have to look after ourselves. Adultery is one thing, murder is another, but Jesus' teaching here can apply across the full range of wrongdoing. There will be times when you fail and you will find God's forgiveness in those times. But sometimes the only reason you sin is because of the choice that you made in the first place. We can actually be very good at putting ourselves firmly in the firing line. 
eyes, hands, feet. The list is probably not exhaustive. You could probably throw in ears as well and tongue and maybe there's other things you could think of if you've got long enough. But let's just stick with those three. We don't, judging by a quick look around you this evening, take these words literally. But we do need to take them seriously, deadly seriously, eyes, hands, feet. Don't look, don't touch, don't go there. It's all too easy when we fall to say, the devil made me do it. But actually, more often than is sensible, we've set ourselves up for that fall. If you know that watching something on the television or in the cinema is going to feed the wrong kind of thoughts, then switch it off. Don't go there. If reading is going to be your downfall, then tear it up, throw it away, and don't buy it again. If you feel the need to stare, then sit somewhere else. If filling your hands with the wrong stuff is damaging, then don't touch it. If that place isn't good for you, then don't go there. In fact, use your feet to run in the opposite direction. That's even better than amputation. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, makes the comment that we cannot, for example, be prescriptive about the things that Christians should watch on television or in the cinema. Some of us may be familiar with church backgrounds where that has happened. Philip Yancey recalls, I grew up in a church that drew sharp lines between the age of law and the age of grace. While ignoring most of the moral prohibitions of the Old Testament, we had our own pecking order that rivaled the Orthodox Jews. At the top were smoking and drinking. Movies ranked just below these vices, with many church members refusing even to attend The Sound of Music. Rock music, then in its infancy, was likewise regarded as an abomination and quite possibly demonic in origin. Other prescriptions, wearing makeup and jewellery, reading a Sunday paper, playing or watching sports on Sunday, mixed swimming, curiously termed mixed bathing, skirt length for girls, hair length for boys, were heeded or not heeded, depending on a person's level of spirituality. Now, I naturally tend to assume that everybody has the same struggles as I do. But actually, we all attempt it in different areas. And we need to know our own weaknesses and act wisely in that way. If we're honest, we all know where we're vulnerable, the areas where we struggle. We feed our minds with the wrong stuff, and then the damage is done. The trouble, too, of course, can be but if you keep feeding your mind the wrong food, it may actually come out in your actions too. And adultery in the heart may become adultery in the open. It is often said that it's the first lingering look when the seeds of adultery are sown. We need to take care of our eyes, hands and feet. Sometimes all of these choices work together and a series of bad choices could put us right in the path of temptation. Let's take a case study from the Old Testament. 
consider King David. He, of course, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and that sort of spiralled on even further and ended up in him murdering her husband as well. Now, you could say that Bathsheba belonged to someone else, so David should have jolly well kept his hands off. But that sin was growing long before that final act. David had made a series of bad choices. His eyes were definitely involved here. When he saw a woman taking a bath, he didn't look the other way, but he feasted his eyes and eventually his moment came. His eyes caused him to sin. But his feet were involved too. He was watching Bathsheba from where? From the palace roof. Now you could ask the question, what was he doing walking on the palace roof? Sometimes you have to go to quite some lengths to put yourself in a position to be tempted. The writer of 2 Samuel reminds us too that David not only shouldn't have been up on the roof, he shouldn't even have been in Jerusalem because it was fighting season. He should have been leading his troops in battle. David had a serious foot problem, bad eye condition and itchy hands. He certainly didn't help himself when it came to his LPs and were too often just like him. We do depend totally on God, but it may be that tonight you actually need to think, are there some practical choices that I need to make about the way I live, the things that I do, about what you watch, read or listen to, the places you go, the clubs you belong to, the things you possess that maybe you need to let go of. We need to be disciplined about these things in our lives. For many of us, says John Stott, to follow Jesus as we should will mean a kind of maiming. It may be that we make some choices not to include certain things in our lives which others are going to struggle to understand. We may be regarded as narrow-minded or missing out on some great life experience. It may be that, as he puts it, you could be socially maimed. But we too as Christians are presented with a choice to weigh up what is most important, enjoying the sin or walking closely with Jesus. We're talking about habits of the heart. We need to feed the good habits and starve the bad ones. So where are you tonight? Are you admitting for the first time that you cannot reach God by your own efforts? certainly not by the Jesus standard, you realize that the only way forward is to depend wholly on his amazing grace. Then if you want someone to pray with you and help you, then please take that opportunity tonight. Or if you see yourself constantly making the same bad choices that lead to the same sins and the same failures, then let someone pray with you. Forget Adrian Plass, we won't all assume what you're coming to the front for. But please come and pray and deal with this, these issues and be honest with your struggles. So let's seek God's help and determine to use our eyes, hands and feet and every part of you properly. <laughs>